All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. I don't think it's into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to episode 107 of... I can remember if I'd hit record. Then I'm like, where's my fucking thing? All right, five, three, two, one. Welcome to episode 107 of the Kiss FAQ podcast. I'm your host today, Julian Gill, and I am joined by Ken, 69th Blizzard, and Marcus Almighty. Mark, welcome back, gentlemen. Greetings. Um, before we get into the first part of our discussion today, we're taping this on Thursday the 19th, so obviously tomorrow is an incredibly important day in American history. Um, you just don't get days as important as tomorrow too often, but it is, of course, Paul Stanley's birthday, so everyone at the KISS FAQ <laughs> would very much like to wish Paul a very happy birthday, star child. You are still the best front man in rock and roll for me. Um, simple as that. And, of course, everyone out there will have uh, probably read that Paul got himself a bit of a concussion while skiing um, earlier yeah. in the, in the yeah. week. So, you know, hopefully you're okay, Paul, resting up, being pampered by your family, because skiing and personalities does not always go well. Obviously, I'm thinking of Sonny... Uh, Sonny Bono. Sonny Bono and, and Michael Schumacher in more recent years. Formula One driver, of course, uh, who is still not in good shape following his head injury. So, you know, take care of yourself, star child. Um, we want you around for many years to come. So happy birthday to you. Let's move on to another member of the band now briefly. And Gene Simmons. Uh, yeah, you know, he's the gift who keeps on giving in so many ways. Uh, Gene joined Ralph Sutton and Zach Amico on a recent appearance uh, of the SDR show. Um, I'm just going to let the clip speak for itself, and then we'll just talk about this briefly. Kiss has been around since forever. 43 years. Right. And boy, do I look good. 43 years. Yeah. 43. At this point now, yeah. what inspires you to continue? Like you did, Monster was a couple of years ago. Great record. I loved Hell and Hallelujah. Great song. What inspires you guys at this point to just keep that Kiss train rolling? Besides, obviously, the money and the fans. Like to create new albums and do that. Where do yeah, you find that inspiration? Less, that's less of an incentive because downloading and file sharing right. everybody people have convinced themselves they don't want to pay for stuff and last time i checked kiss is not a charity we're philanthropic but i'll be the one that decides how much i give and where i don't want some college kid to decide you have enough money i, right. you know, I don't want to pay for your record okay then go download a radiohead record and see what happens no i ain't about that make a distinction between commerce and philanthropy so the idea of doing another KISS record, unless and if there's a financial model that works, personally, I'm not interested in it. All right, so Gene Simmons, not interested in doing another KISS record unless there's a financial model um, that works in his favor. You know, uh, that's, you know, I, I got to say, there's too much butthurt going on in that because he, he just, even Metallica got over Napster. I mean, for fuck's sake. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, so Ken, what's your initial impression on him saying that? Because uh, I I did just oh, he... grab a few things. You know, they talked about Monster. Okay, Monster, three D yeah. lenticular cover, international tour edition, whatever, mm -hmm. limited deluxe edition, mm -hmm. copies of the fucking record over there. Final. So, 
Yeah, you know, so how many copies did, you know, the remaining core of fans buy of the last mm-hmm. Kiss record and it still didn't sell worse shit? Simple as that. You know, their legacy, they're done. You know, so what's your what's your take on that, Ken? <laughs> well, he he is just I'm a lot at a loss for words, but uh he he is just still on his own thing about uh the people stealing music thing and he had to jump in and say well i'm not gonna you know make music if they're gonna just download it and take it for free and you know he'd be lucky when he's when they started off they they were putting out their first album you know they need to get back to that mentality of just put out they didn't know how much they were going to sell back then uh they were doing it for the the love of you know of playing music and uh so, yeah, they wanted to make a lot of money at some point, but come on, give me a, give me a break. Uh, and and then so so he was the one that wanted to do albums for a while. He kept saying, "Oh yeah, I want to. Do, we're gonna do another album." And then Paul kept saying no. Now Paul's saying yes, and now he's saying no. <laughs> like, what the, come on, it's just just get on board. I, I think I think uh, it's it's just it's just his his way of saying you know stop downloading and this and that now he talks about the college kids uh the college, music they, yeah like they're listening to they're, kiss. they're not even listening to kiss okay, <laughs> okay and if they are starting to get into vinyl now vinyl keeps growing uh more and more college kids are buying records now they may come across and buy an album so hey you know if you put out a new vinyl maybe they'll buy that based on buying something you know looking you know getting interest in kiss or, uh, if nothing else so come on just 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 get over it and you know yeah like you said metallica got over a napster he just needs to get over it i mean he's got you know he's not losing he's not going to lose money first of all and secondly he's got a ton of money so what's the big problem just make some music and do it for your fans, who is your number one boss, not the person who goes to college and, and downloads. Think of your fans when you're making their music. Money is his god. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the word that immediately pops into my head when he finishes talking like that is he's so goddamn obdurate. You know, it, it's like, are, are, are you just, just incapable of getting past the 1999 arguments? or whenever the Napster thing was, you know, and it's still the college yeah. kids. It's, I mean, these sound bites in the Gene Simmons echo chamber just make me want to puke. Mark, you're an artist. You're someone who actually makes <laughs> yeah. music. You're a creator. You know, your opinion to me is more important than anyone's on, on this panel. So what's your take on him? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Jeez, I almost choked on that. Um, the, the thing that, uh, really, really, uh, bothers me about this is that he's missing one fact and of course being a musician and that kind of musician that he is he would never openly admit this the fact of the matter is that kiss are not really a huge uh band as far as people buying anymore i mean mm-hmm. you know you say no people are downloading so you know i'm not interested in doing it well you know there are lots of bands out there that are still selling records now there is a turnaround they even said on the news lots of times on lots of different media sources that i've seen that vinyl has totally, you know, went up huge percentile in sales. And, you know, maybe it just hasn't gone up for KISS because, you know, as much as I love KISS and I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't, 
the fact of the matter is they aren't selling nearly as much records as other bands now are. You know, they won't they can't compare with bands like Foo Fighters or something like that. They just outsell them, you know, Jesus, thousands to one, you know. And that's part of the problem, I think. And he won't, of course, admit that because he would admit defeat. And Gene Simmons is not about that. But, you know, on one hand, I kind of, you know, as a musician, you sure you want to get paid for what you're doing. It's like, you know, somebody, you know, who's a bricklayer, he goes out and works an eight hour day and then they just tell you, oh, I just don't feel like paying you. You know, I'm sure you would be pissed off if somebody did that to you at your job. Just take any job that you're at and imagine that situation. <clears throat> but, you know, they've been doing lots of things to tackle this. Like you said, Julian, there's been many different uh, types of releases you can get, you know, deluxe editions, you know, Blu-ray versions of records, of vinyl. There's all kinds of ways that you could make up the loss of the down of the downloading. Right. And if they took advantage of that more often, which they don't, and like I've said in many episodes before, like why don't they make some video of them in the studio recording, add it as a DVD to uh, to their new record? And I, I people like me would go out and buy it in a heartbeat. I want to see this kind of stuff. Give people incentive to buy your stuff it doesn't only have to be about the music nowadays it's about a lot more people add in live stuff people add in in studio stuff people add in like a bunch of stuff you had a bunch of great ideas julian as well when you left us that note about the episode today like you know you know put in a golden willy wonka ticket for a meet and greet you know the one person who gets the this you know the, the in five in five cds put it in there and people will be hunting for them everywhere to try to find that to have a meet and greet oh, yeah. you know I, I so, just I just sell Kiss, you know, Kiss and Willy Wonka, the fucking golden ticket in the Wonka bar. I mean, why has Kiss not done that? They've done the platinum card, you know, in 87, 88, or maybe it was late 86, you know, get into any Kiss concert forever for free. Oh, yeah, only valid until we change management. Oops. Um, you, you know, but thinking back to some of these acts, you know, Radiohead, you know, they released, uh, what was it, In Rainbows in 2007, and initially it was just a download. So you could download it and pay what you wanted here's the catch most people paid nothing is what their um, their analytics came out and actually figured out zero but they still went on to sell something like three million copies worldwide of that album a lot of it obviously was to do with the press at the time uh, that came out with it but more recently Foo Fighters, you know, people love them or hate them. I'm sorry, I, I'm on the love side because I just absolutely adore Dave Grohl and what he represents for rock. You know, and now that Lemmy's gone you're, and Ronnie mm -hmm. James Dio's <clears throat> gone, you're kind of left with Dave Grohl. No one else is filling that niche. Um, they gave away the St. Cecilia EP, which is the follow-up to Wasting Light. Um, yeah, and some people are the follow-up to Sonic Highway, sorry. Um you know, and yeah, some people are going to say, well, yeah, because I wouldn't fucking buy it. You know, you better give it away free because it was shit. Um, you know, I thought it was pretty good. And then on record store day, it came out on vinyl. So, you know, the, the model is still working. Getting back to Metallica, they, you know, got over their hump. You can now, I get emails from them after buying an AT&T show, AT&T Park that they did in San Francisco with the Super Bowl last year. Um, every show they do goes up onto Metallica. Pearl Jam did mm -hmm. the same. You know, obviously Kiss did similar um, with Instant Live and all that. So when we're talking about new revenue streams, um, Kiss and Gene Simmons, to me, seems to become like the American airline industry of trying to 
get a leg over and absolutely hump the living daylights out of absolutely every revenue stream possible. They've done it for their, you know, their live concerts by the microphone, by the pick, by the guitar. Mm -hmm. Here's a stage play guitar. Here's a stage play drum snare. Here's my fucking ass hair off the toilet seat. Um, <laughs> So now the mentality kind of goes into the recording industry. Well, where are my revenue streams coming out of, you know, the effort that we put into creation? Well, Gene Simmons' creative process, I think we discussed in the last episode, is a bit um, shotgun approach. You know, he throws a lot of shit up on the wall and not all of it sticks. So where are your revenue streams, Gene? Gene, you've already invested the time and effort. You've written hundreds, if not thousands of demos of songs you've mm -hmm. got the work there what are they doing for you in terms of your revenue stream you know are they going to be back no a baggage fee in the overhead compartment or are they going to be you know here's your free bag of peanuts because right now they're not getting you anything they're getting you peanuts so gene don't tell me that there's no financial reward for making new music you've already spent money you've already spent you're not recouping any of it i mean mark you know what does it cost you to create it takes away time from other things, right? Yeah, that's one thing. Not all, but I mean, not all of it works out. I sit for hours on my guitar, yeah. and I'm not even a, a working musician. I'm doing it for fun. I'm doing it for pleasure. Right. You know, yeah. Is Gene? Is is there no joy left in his life musically? Maybe. I mean, that could be that could be part of it because I mean, one quote that I've always held close to my chest that I heard, and it's comes it comes from a musician that I was very surprised who said it. Nikki Six is that artists make art. Right. And, you know, if you're a musician, you make music. It doesn't matter. You know, it, that's just in you. You know, if you're thinking about more of the mon monetary end of it all the time, then maybe you're not as much of a musician as you think you are. Because, I mean, for me, I just enjoy writing songs, just like I'm sure Julian enjoys writing it. That's why we do it. You know, we, we go and we get up, we take our guitar, write something. By the end of an hour or two, we might go, oh, my God, this is shit and throw it out. But it, it was still fun trying to do it. Right. And then other times you come up with a gem and you're like, great, this is working out well. I mean, when the record I just finished doing now, it took me almost two years of recording and writing stuff. And, you know, of the 12 songs that I have over the two records I'm going to put out, there were more songs I got tossed out as well that I looked, listened back to and said, well, you know what? This just isn't as good as this stuff, so why bother keeping? I don't want to jip people off, you know. And mm -hmm. but that's just it. It's the it's it's about doing it. It's about you know it being fun. And I even I put up a song for free on uh, Garage. What was that place again? Bandcamp, and mm -hmm. you know put it out for free. And I said people, if you want to download it for free, they went and did it. And some people even paid knowing full well that it was available so don't tell me that people sometimes right. won't do that because if they feel that they enjoyed it and they feel it's worth their time and they they enjoyed it they will plop down for it just like maybe when these bands release full records i think the thinking behind that is you listen to it you like it so much that now i want to fully invest myself in it i want a physical product of this now i just don't want it on my phone anymore i want to have the vinyl now i want to have the cd and it, and but you might not have gotten to that point if you didn't have it there to listen to beforehand because some people are cautious with their money right so it, it helps right yeah here's here's a good example my buddy jonathan in uh, town turned me on to a band called white wizard and i checked out their stuff on youtube next day Right, I think it was during the week after I'd listened to it a few dozen times. I'm like, fuck, I gotta have that. 
you know listening to it on youtube yeah. is not the same as purchasing the physical cd for me oh, obviously yeah. people opinions do vary and some people live and die by their itunes libraries um but i was like i want that cd i want to have it up in my cd rack you know because i, I always yeah. want to be able to recover the music that i like and i really dug that shit so much that you know I ordered it, you know, or ordered some mm -hmm. Merciful Fate, you know, for fuck's sake, and King Diamond. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. I can listen to it all on YouTube, but can you create a playlist easily out of that shit? Can you load it up on your phone, put it in your car, et cetera, et cetera? No. So, you know, it, it, it's he's a Luddite. He does not understand technology. It's like talking to my parents about their AOL, AOL accounts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of says it all for, for Gene. Yeah that he does not get it and here's another thing with the uh, the radiohead you know while most fans chose to pay nothing for it um the publishing arm and management were monitoring the average price daily and they were prepared to cancel the download if um, the the overall average paid price became too low they didn't cancel it you know until it had run its course and had been released physically so that speaks volumes for how mm -hmm. far you can go um, in, in terms of teasing online, using technology to your benefit, because think of the audience that you get. We published, and this was Tim uh, interviewed Paul Green, or Green, and I apologize for butchering his name there, um, about Kiss Sales when he was, you know, doing his news admin thing, his, you know, co-admin on the FAQ. And Kiss's sound scan figures are nothing impressive. Obviously, we're t going back to 1991, mid-91, I think, sound scan starts, through, I think we were 2013 when Tim did that. And I think it came to about 12 million, under 12 million catalog, plus all those albums in that period that came out new. So Revenge, 500K, Alive 3, 500K, MTV, 500K. So that's we're nearly mm -hmm. to two million right there just for yeah. those albums. So the back catalog does not move a lot. So I really don't think Gene has a healthy view into his own, you know, kind of area of the industry in terms of what Kiss sells. This is not Casablanca Records, where you're finagling a four solo album advance to get four times the solo, uh, the mm -hmm. advance, which obviously is going to be recouped by the label. You're getting four times the advertising budget sent to Howard Marks and all that shit. So he's still living in the 70s in some ways. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think my what I want to say is recording a new album and doing something online is just so totally geared for Kiss, and it's something that they've never done properly. Sonic Boom. Do you remember those video clips of them working in the studio and mm -hmm. trying to match mm -hmm. up what yeah. Tommy... A lot of them were Tommy on guitar, Eric on drums, you know, a little bit of Gene and Paul behind the board. Mm -hmm. Remember Kissology, <laughs> the Easter egg from Carnival of Souls, how people ate that up and said, where's oh, yeah. more? Uh, yeah. MTV rehearsal, uh, unplugged rehearsal, you know, DVD. Um, yeah. You know, people love that shit. And here, here's my idea. A pay site. Put the paywall in front of it. Kiss fans, for while the band are recording an album, they say we're gonna we're gonna start the process for Kiss whatever number of studio album it is, um, and you're gonna have to sign up and pay monthly. But in there, you're gonna get video blogs. 
You're going to get behind the scenes. You're going to see clips. You're going to see us working on songs. You're going to see Paul Stanley with a 12-string guitar working on a song that he then turns around and says, no, nah, that's not working. That doesn't fit the vibe of where we're going. You know, shit like that. Mm-hmm. It's otherwise yeah. stuff that is all done in the creative process. Right, Mark? You sit with your guitar, exactly. you noodle around, you're like, oh, that's a nice chord progression. Oh, fuck, it's not working. Okay, it doesn't work with the melody I got in my head. Okay, move on. To go on to something else, or here's Gene Simmons. You know, I've got 89 hard disks full of uh, demos and and samples. I'm going to Kirk Hammett it up and put together a Metallica song made out of 19 different components. You know, make Delia Smith throw up from the amount of ingredients in there. And sell it to the people. You know, do it in a format that they can't easily download, number one, because you can then package it all up on the DVD and fucking sell mm-hmm. it in one of these yeah. numerous editions. Why are people downloading them? I mean, here, here's my question. I'm going to go to you, Ken, first. Do you think people still download and don't support their artists because the artists are doing bonus tracks for Europe, bonus tracks for iTunes, bonus tracks for Best Buy? Do you think that has an effect that there are too many different products being sold of the same album, say, and they're feeling that the artist is disrespecting them by giving exclusives to all these dozens of... I mean, how many copies of Kissology did we have to buy to get the good bonus discs? Stuff like that. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think that it really affects... I mean, just from my standpoint, if I'm, if I'm into that artist, I'm going to get it, you know... I'm going to get the regular U.S. version... I may buy a a Japanese version that comes out and has a couple extra, uh, you know, things on it, uh, songs on it. Um, That's if you're in that mode of of supporting the band. uh, It's just about the music or just collecting that group. I don't know. Um, But for me, yeah, I'm going to, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. They put something out and yeah, I kind of understand it. They, there are different markets out there in the world and, and and certain countries have gotten different things. Like I remember Creatures of the Night, you know, uh, had that uh, etching on the one side or the signatures. Yeah, the UK twelve and inch. And the other, and I have, the, I mean, I have that. Uh, so I got all that stuff, and uh, you know, I had no problem buying it. I was like, you know, you're still going to be able to get it in, in this day and age. Um, so I, it, it wouldn't bother me. I like the pull out tongue single for a killer. Uh, for, I have, for, I have for that. Killer, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, that. so it's been done historically. Going back, I mean, Monster. Look, Japan initially got what I think it was King of the Nighttime World Alive uh, cut of that was their bonus track. Later on, when they went on tour there, they got the international tour edition with Right Here, Right Now, which was also a bonus track for iTunes. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's it's nothing new with Kiss. It has traditionally only been one song, if that. You know, you go back to Killers, and there was a totally different, you know, track list for Japan and Australia. Um, you go to Smash, has had a different track list for England, um, with uh, what the what the fuck those two dreadful Crazy Night songs, um, you know, because there were hits there. So yeah. you know, it, it's it's not been something that's common. I mean, you wanted the best, had New York Groove, um, got to choose on MTV Unplugged, Europe, I think. Kiss My Ass had D-Arts, um, or however mm. you say it in German, apologies. Um, it has to sound more aggressive than than that as a name. <laughs> yeah, so what, I, what I'm saying is Kiss has never fully explored the airline industry-ification of their album releases. 
You know, they they haven't had a ton of different versions going. Well, what rec- where can you buy records in America now? Virgin's gone. Best Buy is pretty HMV? much. I haven't seen an HMV in years, so I, I don't know if they're oh, still. Really? I don't know if they're still around. Um, fuck, I haven't been to one since Glasgow in '97. In our, in our neck of the woods, they have still HMV. I mean, just one thing I'd like to just put in really quickly too. When you're talking about if people are willing to support the artist, I fully support it. And one of my most one of my most fondest memories back in the in the late '80s, for example, was when Def Leppard came up with Hysteria. They had mm. uh, back then cassette singles, right? And I remember when those came out, I used to love getting those because they had different artwork for each one. And because there were so many different singles that came out of that, you also had all these great B-sides that came with it too. So it was almost fun in itself going out to buy all those. And I got all of them. I had them, I have them somewhere in my closet, but I got all of them and I got the record and I got the vinyl, you know, the CD and you know, and that's the thing. If you like it, you will buy it. So the my only right. comment to make to Gene Simmons is that if you want people to buy your stuff, make it good. Make the record good. If the record is good, people will buy it. If it's shit, they're not going to go get it. Yeah. 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 And but look at those B sides for Hysteria. I'm sorry, I don't think Kiss has ever had throwaways like Tear It Down, throwaways yeah, okay. like Ring of Fire, throwaways like Right Into the Sun '87, that abomination. Yeah, that's also because they hadn't had a producer like Mutt Lang behind the board helping them for who knows how long. You know, the last time you would compare, the closest you can compare to a Mutt Lang is obviously like a Bob Ezrin. And he's only done limited amounts of stuff with them. So there you go, right? But with all the stuff they've done demo-wise, you know... Why the hell? Why the hell not? I mean, I, I totally yeah. agree with you. You know, and that was the cool. I was collecting those as well when it came out. I, you know, it was even in England around that time. And I, I was like, I found a, a one ninth square that was different than anything else from all the other <laughs> ones I had. So, you know, I think I got to eight ninths of the album cover replicated with those yeah. seven inch singles. It was absolutely insane. And Kiss has never done anything like that. I mean, yeah. I, I think the closest they come is the solo album singles in in Britain. Which, you know, isn't saying a lot. So, you know, I, I think Gene's gaslighting the whole state of everything. And I just wanted to throw that phrase out there because that's the the, the word du jour. Uh, gaslighting. Everything's being gaslit. But, you know, Gene, step away from the accounts. Step away from your bank balance for a minute. Pick up that fucking guitar. Pick up an acoustic. Because... We know who you are, Gene, the real Gene. You know, just start playing. Mm-hmm. My uncle is a raft, or my mother is the be- most beautiful woman in the world, yeah, or that's right. turtle soup, or Eskimo Sun. Eskimo Sun. You know, go back into those early <laughs> '70s demos where you are basically your Paul McCartney wannabe, and remember the music. Remember what you were trying to do, what you were trying to express when you're doing that. You weren't thinking. Well, maybe you were thinking about getting laid, but I don't think you were thinking about your revenue streams, you know, that you could sell each guitar string for to a Kiss fan for $95 off that guitar. I mean, well, fuck, guys, I guess you could sell. Here are the strings that we were using while we recorded such and such a song. So if it happens, yeah. it's my fault and I own it. So sorry. So, you know, get get a pay site. Let the fans vote on track list, vote on um, 
album names vote on what songs they want you know give them demo samples you know what demo do you want us to record and if it's a gene simmons one what demo do you want paul stanley to rewrite for me um you know there's just so much fun that could be had in in a pay site that could then be done so i obviously got to be in my bonnet over that uh, you know sex and drugs and rock and roll podcast episode check out the full episode of their podcast because gene does give you know some pretty funny responses in there and the the guys you know ralph and zach are you know they're entertaining it's it's a good podcast and well worth checking out so go there find it you know google it i don't know if i'll put up a link for that so any final thoughts on that before we move on into today's topic i feel like we've just gone all three sides with a very long preamble before we actually get down to our <laughs> you want to talk about Molly no. Crew? no more thoughts about it. yeah no more <laughs> yeah. God. I'm sorry. Okay, Motley Crue conversation. Too fast for love. Shout at the devil, and that's it. End of topic. Uh, you know what? I, I agree with you. And MC94 uh, as a completely different band. So. The Leather Records uh, version of Too Fast for Love is the best. Fucking hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sorry. Okay, that's enough Motley Crue. My um, opinion. <laughs> if, if we have a conversation about Motley Crue, we have to skip every other line, just like Vince does when he sings. Okay. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so to, today's topic actually is not Gene Simmons, and it's not about the recording industry. It's not about my opinions. Um, Ken, Kiss well, Sister Albums. Yeah, Kiss Sister Albums. I was just thinking about it, and I know there, there's albums that I, you know, uh, you know, I... I think of as sister albums uh you know we have holy trinities and that kind of stuff but this is more of sister albums that albums that were released uh consecutively uh two albums that were released consecutively that are similar and kind of you know they go together and uh you know what are the what are they and uh what are the best uh sister albums out there you know which are the the two best uh, that of the, all the sister albums. Now I came up with six, six sets of sister albums. I don't know how many. Just I mean, and you guys might have a different view on sister albums, but I'm going to guess for the most part we're all going to be on board in the same uh, idea. Uh, you don't think so? Okay. I and then I, the, I, the other I, ones I, that are not sister. Yeah, the other ones that are not sister albums are I consider just. They're orphan, orphans. <laughs> I, that, but there's also records, I think, that could be sister <coughs> ones that are not released consecutively, and I'll get to that when it comes to okay. my turn. Well, that's, yeah, that, exactly. That, that was what I was sense. kind of thinking as well. So, so yeah, Ken, you, Ken, why, you do, why, don't you, uh, why don't you kick us off with uh, the first of your sister albums and tell us why you think, what makes them a sister album? Okay. Well, the first... Sister albums, uh, set of sister albums, and now there's no particular order, but uh, I'm just kind of going chronologically anyway. Um, it's uh, Kiss, the first album, Kiss, and Hotter Than Hell. Um, I believe, even though the production, <laughs> yeah, the production is pretty, pretty different uh, from the first to the second one. It's you know, it's somewhat there, but uh, it's the style of music. Uh, between the two albums, a lot of those, some of those songs could have wound up on 
you know, the first album from that were on Hotter Than Hell because um, they, they were available and they were on the, so for instance, uh, on the original demo, um, I want to say Watching You, I think was yeah. one or some, mm-hmm. right? So those two, to me, go together uh, versus if I couldn't put Hotter Than Hell and, and Just To Kill together. Those are, there's no way a sister album to me, it's, it's, they, don't, they don't work together as far as I'm concerned. So, my first set is Kiss and Hot in Hell. They're, they're sister albums. They go together. Yeah, I I don't know about that. I, I mean, I get you on watching you. Um, yeah. When I when I think about those two albums, my head has a problem with the completely contrasting sonic styles of both of those albums. And well, while yeah, and while that's yeah, that's that's my that's my problem. I mean, watching you obviously dates. You know, it's on the Whitman demo. It's it you know could have been a contender for the first album, but you know Parasite got to choose you know that stuff all comes later, kind of in the catalog for me. But I just can't get over the difference in sound where you have the first Kiss album is just a glorious piece of platter. It's just it's close to perfection in terms of sound. It's you know a fantastic sounding record, and then you get. You, you gotta like pile in a couple of gallons of earwax into your ear. Gotta hit yourself in the head a few times. You get the sludgy, grungy sound, which you know is in, it's endearing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I I do like the sound of it, but it's just so different. Mark, what about you? Well, I can see where Ken comes from with that theory. Basically, what prevents it to be a, a full sister record for me is the same thing that you mentioned, Julian, is mainly the production. Now, I present to you this question. If they would have stayed back in New York, did it at Bell Sound, mm-hmm. did everything the same way and recorded it, would we have a closer sister record? I venture to say yes, because, you know, uh, Let Me Go Rock and Roll was in there set for a long time, even as far back as the beginning. Like we said, Watching You was in there. You know, um, you have Going Blind that went back even before that. So there are traces of stuff that could be connected in that way. But the main problem is the production. Because they went in, dicked around, wanted to become, you know, some pseudo Black Sabbath sounding record right. there. Then I think if they just would have left well enough alone and let those guys do what they did the first time around with the second record, we would have had a good sister record. Yeah, and, and that's something for me. When I think about a sister record, I almost think of part A and part B. So, you know, you, you mm-hmm. get Judas okay. Priest and they're originally, like, they're planned for twin turbos, which would have mm-hmm. kind of all that material. Most of it ended up on, you know, turbo and ram it down. But mm-hmm. and with some other stuff, it was supposed to be one piece of product so you kind of have a continuation of the theme the sonic idea kind of the writing style spread across two releases use use your illusions probably a even better example or god help me for saying it load reload um oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so th- those to me are closer to my idea of a sister album i'm gonna jump in immediately and give you the first sister albums that really came to my mind were animalize and asylum Okay, yeah, yeah. Because that's the era I get into the band, so it's the one that's most firmly tattooed mm-hmm. on my brain. And everyone's saying he's talking about fucking Asylum again. Someone take him off the <laughs> air. You know, a, a, Asylum, if nothing else, is a continuation of exactly what they were doing 
in animalize which is trying to be motley crew wasp and bon jovi you know basically rolled into one band with a lot of latex sequins bad wigs um and fluorescent <laughs> shit yes. but the the main differentiation between the two is the quality of gene stuff so paul stanley's material mm-hmm. i think between the two albums if you take it and you playlist it all together you get a very kind of unified feel out of all of those songs you've got the up-tempo rockers you kind of got the slower melodic stuff jeans you have shit sandwich slightly less shit sandwich so because this just simply isn't his best era he's got some good parts in some of the songs that do stand out but he's really not fully invested back into what he's doing so for me with their dreadful covers sister albums <laughs> yeah i agree i <laughs> I, I have that on my list uh, also julian that was another pair of sister albums so that one we have a match on um and i agree that you know animalizes they're similar uh style wise at least you know, like you said paul stanley and but the second they they improved on it fortunately and, and had, did a better production I, I believe on Asylum, uh, much better. But yes, like you said, both album covers are are bad in their own right. Uh, but yeah, those are sisters. I I might well say that I think Asylum's production might be Paul's best. So. Yeah, well, I I, I think Probably. that it's, I think that you're pretty close to it. I mean, I think another thing, the way you kind of look, the way I kind of look at these two, it's a it's like the good-looking sister and the kind of bad-looking sister in this one, because I think I, Asylum is like, you know, the record I love, so that's the good-looking sister, and mm-hmm. Animalize is kind of like the, meh, you know, it's like she got all the bad genes out of the deal, you know, one, because I, I just feel that besides, like, you know, the Heaven's on Fire and a couple of other songs off that record, it's not really so great. Whereas to me, Asylum is much stronger in writing. But like you said, the premise is what makes them the sisters record because they're trying to go for the same goal with both records. They're trying to they're trying to mine the same, you know, field there for results, right? And I think that that definitely makes them sister records in that way. Um, a big glaring difference, though, between the two sisters is one is dating Mark St. John and the other one has Bruce Kulick, right? So yeah. I think that Bruce Kulick had the better sister out of the deal. And, you know, it's to me, it's just more musically pleasing Asylum. But like you said, they are sisters in that, in that sense. The the goal, I think, is what makes them the sisters in this. What they are trying to achieve with those records, they're, they're very similar in that. And I think Asylum just ended up in my opinion, got there better, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, Animalize sold better of the two, yep. right? Because of the because of the mm. single, right? Uh, Heaven's on Fire went double double platinum, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that's a interesting thing there with the sister. Doesn't mean that the good looking sister always ends up with the better result, right? Yeah, it, it didn't get to double platinum, um, but they were kind of parroting that it was at 1.8 mil, million at one point. Um, you know, God knows with accounting what it really sold. It's, I think, you know, I've always thought that Animalize benefited more from Lick It Up 
than mm. asylum benefited right. from animalize. I, I, I think a yeah. drop had happened by that point that officially anyway, asylum I believe is only gold certified by the RIAA. Yeah. Whereas obviously in Kiss's advertising PR material, it's a platinum album. So, you know, there, there's always going to be a little bit of a, you know, they're they're, st- <clears throat> they're still they're doing their numbers by Bill. No, I'm sorry, by Neil Bogart methodology still, uh, you know. So that <clears throat> yeah. one, one for you, five for me, or twenty for me. And whereas the RAAA does, uh, you know, things a little bit more, you know, specifically professionally. Well, yeah, accurate, accurately, maybe. I mean, who the who the hell knows? I mean, it's just no way to really know, and that's the whole idea, I guess. That okay. yeah, it's it's like your, right. your box office receipts. What would you call a, uh, a I guess sister a sister record? sister record? Okay, so I'm gonna give you my first sister record, and I kind of hinted at it when we first started about how I don't think that they have to be necessarily back to back releases to be sister records. And to me, now I don't know what you guys think of this, but. I feel very strongly <coughs> that Destroyer and The Elder are sister records to me. I knew, I knew you were going to say because, totally. Well, because in, in a lot of way they, ways they are. Yeah. Elder being a concept record and Destroyer, a lot of a lot of the ways, is a way, in a way always being kind of looked at in that light as well. A lot of people made the theory that, in a sense, if you were to break it down, you could always come up with a sort of story theory behind that like concept with Destroyer as well. They had the same producer. They had who did the same kind of tricks, orchestrations here and there on both records. They were both records that had a vastly strong reaction from the from the buying public, the Kiss buying public. You know, it was a. They were both albums that signified a big change in direction for the band. So in a lot of ways, all these things are very similar. They're almost like twin sisters, in my opinion, in this way. And they also had records. They were also records that had album covers that were talked about. One in a very great way, where people love the Ken Kelly one, and then the other one where people kind of were scratching their heads, going, "Um, what does this cover mean?" You know. But again, it still got people talking, whether it was because it was great or whether it was, you know, what the heck is going on here. So, in a way, sisters again <coughs> that way, you know. And again, in another way that they're interesting in sisters is that. Destroyer had session players that we didn't know about till later, and same with The Elder, right? It was, you know, Alan Schwartzberg on drums doing some stuff and other people popping in here and there to do stuff. You know, you had Lou Reed appearing to do help with things, and he was rumored to do this and that, and who knows what else. But those two, to me, are obvious sister records because of that, and Bob Ezrin is the main linchpin tie in it, right? That he's the one who made those, I think, so close in relation yeah i i obviously kind of wrote a little bit about that and completely agree with you that you know basically the elder is bob ezrin re-recording destroyer in 1981 you know Mm. you know right down to the style of songs blackwell god of thunder you know detroit rock city the oath you know flaming youth um i A World Without Heroes, Beth. I mean, for fuck's mm-hmm. sake, the introduction, right. the outro. Yeah. I mean, just calling it a concept, you know, totally across the span of their sister albums. I, I can't fault you on that at all. Um, the only one's got the crumb horn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. Um, uh, you know, we're we're gonna have to do another episode on the Odyssey. There's so much more to dig into. Uh, Ken, what's your thoughts on Marx? Well, I I kind of thought that that's where he was gonna go. Uh, uh, <laughs> though I didn't. I thought about that as possible, um, and I see where he's coming from. Um, uh, but I have a hard time because the songs are so different from each other on those albums. Uh, uh, and maybe that's that's my big you know point with it. The songs are so different from each other. Maybe the production's there. A lot of the you know, like you said, the techniques and, and tricks and so on, uh, and the, you know, doing a concept more or less on both. Uh, but it's just they're so different styles that I I couldn't do it. I couldn't put them together. Yes, yeah, but but you're also a fan from the '70s, whereas I'm a fan oh. who got in on the '80s. So I can never have that ground floor <laughs> kind of perspective. You know, everything I do is revisionist in so many mm. ways because I wasn't there. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you know it's kind of hard for us asylum guys. You know, who got in? You know, we got into the fucking band with asylum. You know. Yeah. We got into the band, you know. It's better late At than least never. You got people. into the band, yeah. It's, it's like <laughs> At some yeah, point. it's like those people who say they came, their families came over on the Mayflower to the United States. Well, you know, <laughs> my family didn't come over to on the Mayflower, but they came over as soon as they could. So, you know, there, there you go. Sister albums, and I, I want to throw in one that I just think is a great one according to Mark's model, and throw stones at me, but Crazy Nights and Psycho Circus. Hmm. Both somewhat, yeah. Completely yeah. overpolished, overcooked, True. overthought, over everything, over you know, <laughs> and and just kind of clusterfucks in the background. Here, here you have Crazy Nights, which is a great idea. That you know we're gonna rate, wait for the right guy who's doing the right thing with the right people. You know, reinvigorating people's careers. Um, you know, and then it comes around and look what they actually release. I mean. Is no one sitting there going and telling Paul Stanley, Paul, perhaps you don't really need to bring back the elder singing style, you know, for my way. I mean, you're, I mean, you're singing, you're singing higher than Jim Gillette uh, from Nitro. You know, all the glass in the studio is breaking, and those things are all pegged in there. All the monitors are pegged in the red. You just don't need to go there. Then you get to Psycho Circus, and again, they're overthinking. They're trying mm. to kind of second guess themselves second guessing a market second guessing everything and just ending up walking into walls so it, it, it's not really on the material it's more down to the production that they put the wrong producer in the wrong situation i think they did ron nevison a great disservice by telling him exactly what they wanted and him perfectly delivering what they wanted and completely skinning the cat. I mean, they took all the fur off that thing. It's it's emotionless music. Yet, and and I've said it again, and I wish I could play these for people, but you know, it's just one of those things that they exist, they circulate, but they cannot be played. The demos of Crazy Nights, the demos of um, what is it? Turn on the night uh, when your walls come down just sound so so much better for the style of material as well it doesn't sound like poison to me it doesn't sound like shit they sound like decent rock songs that with a harder edge and a more gritty gangy chorus rather than the, these hyper polished 
you know, hairsprayed songs that Bon Jovi and to a certain extent Def Leppard were doing with Hysteria. It, it's unkiss-like. Mm -hmm. So then you fast forward to 1998, and they so polished down every element. I mean, didn't they realize in 1998 that what Kiss fans wanted the most was something that sounded like the originals, not Classic. something that not something that sounded like the Ultimate Sin. People didn't want <laughs> Bruce Fairburn to polish the living shit out of stuff, and he was mm -hmm. a good producer. I mean, you just have to listen to <coughs> sure. listen to Pump, which is yeah. you know probably oh, the, yeah. the last half decent. Aerosmith album Aerosmith, in terms of uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Aerosmith uh, Aerosmith yeah. yeah you know it, it's the last really good sounding album that they have in terms of its sonics even if there are songs that show them starting to lose the plot you know on, on a personal basis you know that he was just the wrong guy given the wrong instructions so those are two very sad stories for me Crazy Nights and Psycho Circus that make them perfect sisters in you know misery yeah i think another thing that they where they share <coughs> sisterhood really quickly is both of them were uh heavily hyped before their release as you know watch out there's a big kiss record coming out crazy nice people they were really trying to get people you know excited about that and people were really excited about psycho circus coming out when the when it was all talked about and both of them i think didn't deliver on the on the hype you know Especially Psycho Circus, I mean, mainly because I think people clued into things a lot quicker because it was already, you know, the, the 90s and, you know, the internet was up and rolling. So Rumor Mill was afloat, you know, about yeah. things. And back when Crazy Nights came out, you know, it was just, there wasn't so much that they were hiding anything, but it was more like they were expecting a certain album from Kiss, I think, at that point, and were surprised to get what they got, such a highly glossed, you know, you know, the, the ballad almost sounds like something Hart could have done. And, you know, the, it's just yeah, exactly. like you said, like you said, Rod Nevison being an amazing producer who's done so many great albums like, you know, Ultimate Sin and stuff like that for Ozzy. You know, when you hear those records and think of the things that he's done, you get, get excited and don't expect a record like Crazy Nights. Just like when I heard that Bruce Fairburn was going to do, you know, Psycho Circus. I got excited because, you know, some of the records that he's done before, too. And, I mean, some of the records that he, I think he did, was it afterward? No, I think it was before. No, it was after. He did, like, uh, Yes is the Ladder, and that was such an awesome album that he did with him. It was a record that Yes actually got excited about and what decided to continue going forward and making more albums. It was because of that record, because he had such a great time doing it. But that result never happened with Kiss, you know? Paul Stanley was at odds with him all the time with that record, right? And that's the problem. When you get a producer, let him do his damn job. Don't keep stepping in and overstepping him and saying, no, I don't want that. I don't like that. You know, you hired him for a reason. Yeah. They set him up, and I, I don't think they did him justice. But, Ken, let's get back to your original intent for sister albums, because Mark and I have taken it completely off on a, no, a self-serving tangent. That's all right. I, but I, I see where you guys are coming from, and and it does make you know sense. Uh, though all mine are are back to back in some fashion. So um, so back to me. <laughs> my my next uh, sister albums are Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun. Mm -hmm. um, those two, uh, to me, that's got to be on most everyone's list as a sister album. Um, they came out, you know, after Destroyer, um, 
you know, Rock and Roll Over comes out, and it's a you know a great rockin' mm-hmm. album uh, produced by Eddie Kramer, and uh, you know they were they were going and they were rocking out and they were doing well at that point. Uh, back to the Kiss sound, um, and then uh, Love Gun, though it's similar in uh, somewhat writing styles, more so. I mean, Gene was pretty consistent between the two albums. Uh, Paul was uh, developing a little bit more um, uh, um, just before his solo album stuff, but uh, it was still good and rocking, rocking stuff. And of course, you have Ace on it and uh, for his first song, but that that's not going to you know break the 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 two albums apart for me. Um, they're both produced by Eddie Kramer. They both sound pretty darn good. Of course, it got a bit a little bit more polished on Love Gun. Uh, it's too bad that it doesn't stay more with the rock and roll over production, but uh, it's close enough. And those those two go together. Uh, they're back to back, close in years, 76, 77, and and they're they're both solid albums, pretty solid. Uh, you know, rock and roll over being the more of the better of the two, uh, in my opinion. But they're still they go together. Yeah, you know, I gotta agree with you on that. Um, it's again. It's kind of like the discussion on the first two albums that the production between the two is what kind of kills it for me in calling them mm-hmm. sister albums. Right. You know, Love Gun is almost the Crazy Nights of the Originals era in terms of its sonics. You know mm-hmm. that that it's it's polished the edge off the sound that the band had. You know, Eddie completely perfectly captured Kiss's essence on Rock and Roll Over. You know, they basically cut it live in, uh, what was it, Star Theater um, or or wherever. Um, you know, so it, it's generally recorded live and then the overdub's done. And it completely grabs the sound. Love Gun, well, on, the, on the other hand, just, it doesn't have that grit for me. Well, another possibility I thought of, if I was going to break it up and not do back-to-back years, which is my original intent, I would have went with Rock and Roll Over and uh, Ace Frehley solo album as sister albums. Sonically. To me, those those are more like-sounding sonically than uh, Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun. Yeah, I, I mean... I, I kind of get that. I, I also think that you know, Paul, Paul songs yeah. on Love Gun sound like Paul's song on his solo album as, as well, for that matter. You know, Tonight You, you Belong yeah. to Me, you know, very similar in that Paul mm-hmm. kind of takes exactly what he's learned from Eddie Kramer and puts it into practice. Now, I'm going to go back to Mark's model on Love Gun and say that I think Love Gun and Dress to Kill are much more sister albums for me because they're okay. they're both so polished and condensed I can see that. Um, Mark, come from? Mark yes. I hate to intru- interrupt your reading. Mark's, Mark's reading a novel. No, no I was just I was just going through here <laughs> just because in this book. Excuse me. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Behind the mask. It, it was actually. Yeah, and it's it, <laughs> it's actually Gene Simmons in there who actually said it himself that he said that these are sister records. It's I was trying to find the exact quote that well, he said he really? it in there. Which ones? Yeah. Rock and Roll Over or and Love Gun? Rock and yeah yeah Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun were 
Sister Records. He he even mentions it right in his. I was trying to find the direct quote, but I know he he says it in there that he thinks that she they are. She and I are on the same view on that one. But uh, you know, it it is interesting uh, because because of all the points that Ken brought up. You know, similar producer. I think the mentality was also the same. I think that they thought, you know, whatever worked for Rock and Roll Over could probably work for Love Gun. You know, um, they did try to push Ace to do a song for Rock and Roll Over, if I'm not mistaken, but he never got around to it. So that would have made it even more a sister record if that would have happened. But yeah. there's a lot of elements the same. And then I, but then I also see what Julian's coming from with it too, that he, I think at that point, they had a handle on the writing again. They knew that they weren't going to write anything like Destroyer material, so they weren't, you know, worried about the writing. But I think they probably went back and said, okay, you know, let's try to make it sound a little bit more polished. You know what I mean? Like, I think that they were, not that they were unsatisfied with the, the sound of Rock and Roll Over, but I think they just wanted to progress that part of it. And that's why I think it ended up being a little bit more polished. I love Rock and Roll Over. It's my favorite Kiss record, period. So nothing yeah. about that record is bad. you know. And it's very funny that Julian brought up Love Gun and Dress to Kill because I was going to say that that was my other sister record as well. Because yeah. I see I see the great similarity in that as well. I mean, tone as, as funny as it sounds, they, they to me sound in sound more similar to me than rock and roll over and love gun does because whatever uh dave whitman did with dress to kill it has that very dry clean in your face sound and love gun sort of has that with a little bit of a affecting here and there but the, it's just something about those two that sound very very similar to me in there and, and i and i just really i really like the, the sound of that record i think dress to kill is the best sounding one of the three his first ones it's not my favorite of the three but i think it sounds really hmm. fantastically done I, like, <laughs> like i said before i gave dave whitman all the credit in the world for his work on that for that for that record because he could have took something that could have been a complete disaster and made it sound really good so so here we go ken let's go to the elephant in the room do you have dynasty and unmasked on your list yes okay they're 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 sister albums. I mean, this is going for the pop, you know. Uh, I would guess you'd call it just more AOR rock on, on Dynasty and then going into a, a power pop rock on, on Mass, though. They're so similar. Similar, a lot of the writing styles are similar. Background vocals, similar. Of course, the production is Vinnie Poncia. Uh, the same producer so you're going to get a lot of the same thing so it's those are just i can't break those apart they don't those two don't sound like anything else in their catalog they, they go together yet one of those albums is so much better than the other that's kind of the the tough point to fathom mm. is mm. that yeah there, there's so many rock. there's so many similarities between them but dynasty Perfect. is you know, in some ways, it's perfection, and you might almost almost be able to, you know, draw parallels more with Alive Two and maybe Love Gun, in terms of that it's still kind of softer on the edge of rock, um, you know, highly polished. But the skills that have gone into that material, I mean, fucking hell, Ace on Dynasty, 
you know, and, and what he brings is to me is just a paradigm shift in the band's sound okay. that you've got, you know, one of my all time favorite songs, you know, Save Your Love. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Hard Times. But, uh, you know, I always thought if Dynasty, they should have released a different song as, a, as the lead single other than I Was Made for Loving You. Plus, I think I Was Made for Loving You should have not been this, the lead off song on the album. It should have been somewhere deep in the album. Maybe even the last cut of the album. Uh, I would have rather had it there. I think it would have went over better with their Kiss fans who are coming home. They get the new Kiss album, expecting a rock, and here comes "I Was Made for Loving You." And like what? You know, what are they going? Mm-hmm. So I would have put that on the end of the album. It's kind of funny. Like I've told the story before. When I I got it out of the box at, on the day it was released, pulled it out of the carton at the record store. It wasn't even on the rack yet. I pulled it out, bought it, went home. I th- looked at the back of the cover. I saw okay. Oh, I see Charisma is, is must be the first song. So I just quick glanced at the the vinyl. I saw Charisma, threw it down. I listened to Charisma. I thought Charisma was the lead off single of that album, and that's where I listen. I listened to it that way. That was the first way I listened to it. Second side first, and then the first side second. And I thought this was awesome. I thought this is awesome. <laughs> and uh, but then it turned out, you know, hey, wait a minute, this is really side two or what? So I think it would have went over well better that way. You can you can yeah. never have that first impression back again. That's your first impression, charisma. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah that, that's. I mean, that's awesome. And I mean, I love it. You know, maybe if I was made for loving you wasn't the first song, people wouldn't call it a freaking disco album. Mark, what you were going to exactly. say? Well, exactly. Well, I was going to say one thing. One thing that I find very very interesting about this. I had a discussion about this once in regard to the to the Rush catalog. Now, <laughs> what I find vastly different between Kiss and Rush is that. Where, you're, where we're talking about sister records, with Kiss, it seems like they do a record that's good, and then the next record after that kind of, it goes down a bit. Rep then they life. do another record, it does pretty good, and then it goes, Rrr. now uh, now yeah. the thing is, now, with Rush, I found it was a total opposite. Debut record was okay, Fly By Night, awesome. Press of Steel, mm. okay, 2112, amazing. Awesome. Farewell to Kings, pretty good. Hemispheres, killed it. Permanent waves, really good. Moving pictures, wow. You know, like, and I find that that's why Rush ended up always progressing and progressing and just getting better and better and getting more and more. And they stuck around and kept their audience for such a long time. Whereas with Kiss, I always found they went up and then and then up and then and then it just seemed like their progression just went so staggered with it. It's and even with this situation, Dynasty. They come out. I love Dynasty. It's a number three record, okay, from their catalog. It's amazing. Great job. Like I said before, it reminds me of New York City. Every time I put that on, close my eyes, I can see right. like New York downtown. You know, it's a great record. I love it. Then you put on Unmasked, and you're like, mm, uh, I can see New York, but now I'm thinking more like Queens Boulevard or you know, some somewhere different. It's not downtown anymore. It's like right. somewhere out in the suburbs or something it's just something really odd and i mean the funny thing about it that i saw in here and had to quote the book again <clears throat> vinnie ponce is quoted as saying why did we do popular songs on unmasked well those were the kind of songs that paul was writing it wasn't my idea to come oh. in and change anything 
So really? don't blame okay. Vinnie Poncia on that. Apparently, this Paul's is what fault. Paul Stanley wanted to do. So there we have the answer as to why, you know, Unmasked went the popular direction. Apparently, that's what songs he was writing, and that's what yeah. they wanted to go in. You know, oh, look, look, what, it, look what he was doing at the time. You know, Alessi Brothers, um, you know, Desmond Child, you know, New England. True. Come on. I mean, he, he Studio 54. I mean, what was Paul yeah, Stanley's yeah. life in 1979? You know, and where was he getting his kicks musically? I'm kind of, you know, if you're you're hanging with the Alessi Brothers and, you know, playing some guitar on their stuff, it's no wonder that kind of softer, safer kind of more melodic stuff is starting to creep into your psyche you're suddenly thinking about your song craft a little bit more thinking about what the fuck do i want to dance to rather than what do i want gene simmons to be spitting blood and shaking sweat all over the <laughs> stage to you know yeah, you know yeah. he's on a different stage he's on the you know the on the dance floor you know so you got the saturday night fever image of star child walking down the street not the growling demon so it, it totally yeah. makes the context makes complete sense of why they kind of do what they're doing i mean come on keyboard players I, there's a great interview right. with holly knight that just came out um with uh what is it rock pages got it go to the faq look at the <laughs> look at the i haven't i haven't have a chance to read it yet so um holly knight it was trending high up on the page for a while oh is it dropped down already yeah, so I got it. Rockpages.gr. So go over to the FAQ uh, message board and check out the Holly Knight interview and its Greece's Rock Pages web magazine. And, you know, the little excerpt that I have read so far, you know, very interesting. So, sorry. And she, of course, was in Spider with Hands on Fake. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but I mean, but, but, you, but if you think about it, though, too. They, Paul was in the Studio 54 stuff, too. He mentions it in that book, too, for the Dynasty era as well, right? And, I mean, <coughs> it's it's funny that he was in he was in that kind of vibe for both records, yet one is vastly stronger than the other. Yeah, I think he's trying to do different things. Yeah. You know, in 1979, he sets himself a goal. I mean, it's been written about, and he's told the kind of the story that's probably mm -hmm. gone from, you know, mythical to legendary, uh, and has very little to do with how he originally, you know, kind of sat down. I wanted to write a song with a certain amount of beats in it, you know, just like at the disco. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, paint that a bit thicker. I, I think he set himself a goal to make a, you know, a danceable rock track, one that was very kiss I, and that sounds a little bit more bland and kind of its expression than saying i'm trying to do you know whatever the the hell he says he's trying to do you know whereas with unmasked he's trying to do something different i mean he's trying to be something he's not um in many ways i mean yeah. come on he's trying to be the softer side of joe walsh and bruce springsteen kind of getting into the singer songwriter kind of vibe with a lot of his stuff even though there, there is material that is good, it's it's more experiment, uh, more experimental, and more yeah. kind of dangerous to their roots. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's almost like going into destroyer territory again, going completely antithesis to what they really are. So, right. again, very very good. I mean, that's one of the most obvious kind of sister album pairings, Di Dynasty and Unmasked. Um, what's next up, Ken? On, well, your, on, your, on, your, on your list 
All right. Well, the other one, uh, the next two are are creatures of the night and lick it up. Really? Um, you you actually pair those two together, even though they're so. I did. Again, it's like I the fir- it's like the first album in Hotter Than Hell to me, that the Sonics are are so vastly different that they're I, different. I, I, I couldn't um, call them sister albums, even though Meredith plays such a central role to to both of them. <laughs> what what's your logic behind those? maybe it's more I don't know if it's a sentimental time or something I don't know what it is but uh, it's Creature of the Night yes it was it was clean sounding uh, but still hard rock and the, the big drums and, and, and so on and, and the music style was more aggressive again um, and I think I just think Lick It Up was the next step uh, going you know kind of pushing it to trying to be even more aggressive in their songwriting and uh, and the more to me, it's more of a like I said before, and I know some disagree, but I think it, look it up is more in your face than creatures of the night. Um, <laughs> to my sound, it's more in your face. Thanks a lot. Um, and I like look it up. I think it's one of one of my favorites. It's not uh, better than creatures, but it's it's up there. It's one of my favorite albums by Kiss, and I still think they go together. Um, to me, sonically, it's it's close enough, um, and it's maybe it's the time period where they're you know back to back, and I was really into it at that time. And maybe it has to do with seeing them live uh, with tank stages. Oh, uh, that no, don't, that one don't after. go there. So, yeah, I don't know. I You're mean, a horrible human being, yeah. reminding us asylum guys about the creatures and lick it up tours. Man, <laughs> you just mean. That's really it's a really interesting thing to say in my opinion because as I had to check my pulse there after you said that you know lick it up was better had greater sounding than creatures I was like wow well, I didn't say it's greater sounding I said it's more in your face the yeah. sound the, but, the the production in my opinion but you know what I I, I can like look this is the thing that makes Kiss great is that we all have so many vastly different opinions right. and that we can talk about this and we can have ta- things to talk about for the next 10 years as far as KISS goes, right? But I, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, lots of people do kind of see that kind of connection to it, you know, that, you know, if if, if they would have took off their makeup beforehand, you know, would there be more connection to it? If they would have left their makeup on and did lick it up, would it be more connect? You know, who knows, right? There's so many ways that you could look at it. But, I mean, to me, it's the songs, and the production, I think the production on Creatures of the Night is more bombastic, obviously, and it has those drums. I mean, that's the thing that really separates them as far as I'm concerned. And, I mean, you know, sure, Ben uh, either has more writing credits on Lick It Up than he does on Creatures, but I still think Creatures is a better better album overall. I like it better, I think, from start to finish. I can leave the needle down on the record player and have no problems about skipping anything right and i i think that that's um that that's telling because if you if you have to skip something then it's not as good as you think it is right and i mean the the ending of lick it up is where it loses it for me those last couple of songs that where i start getting a little bit eh, like my fingers kind of i would i want to reach for it i want to take it off Eh, i'll leave it you know but yeah i can see i can see the Connection. I I actually have a different sister one to that, but I'll leave it until after. 
Right, well, I think I'm going to probably throw in the most obvious of recent ones, and that's Sonic Boom and Monster. Yeah. Hard, hard to think of them in any other terms, but uh, but a continuation of the same theme of my way, or the highway. You know, it's the Paul Stanley guided missile that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the material is all going through the Star Child's filter, and it's not making the record unless he's completely happy with it, and I think to a certain extent he gives Gene a few passes, particularly on Sonic Boom, um, and less so on Monster, that, you know, they sound very similar. Um, well, similar enough. I, I think the production on Monster is a step down, and there's Sonic, yeah. Sonic Boom is certainly nothing to kind of, like, uh, put up on the holy altar of wonderful production. <laughs> you know, the, it, Sonic Boom is not sonically pleasing. Simple as that, you know, brick wall to fuck, it compressed to hell. Um, you know, it sounds like a fan in the background. It, it's, you know, uh, but a lot of that comes after what Paul Stanley does as producer. So a, a lot of those faults, it, you know, it's like death magnetic and how bad mm-hmm. that sounded, mm-hmm. um, you know, rather than say, and justice for all sounding as bad as it does because of Lars fiddling with knobs that he shouldn't be allowed in the same room as, um, the only knob he should play with is his own and nothing to do in the studio. Sorry. I mean, when you let, when, when you let, when you let a drummer take a bassist out of an album, you're just taking the whole bottom end out of your fucking album. It's like, what the hell are you doing, drummer? Doesn't boy? make sense. You yeah. know, just yeah. get back, be, go and hit something. You know. Yeah, it it is funny though, how much damage you can do with a compressor and a limiter in the mastering stage of a record. I mean, having done it myself and having you know mixed records and having mastered ones for bands. I'm very weary and leery of that and making sure I have the spectral analyzer up and frequency reader and making sure that I'm not, you know, turning it into a big sausage waveform after when it comes out, because that's, that is not good when you have it like that. I mean, even though there was a rush record like that, the vapor trails was heralded as being the most terrible sounding rush record ever. And then when you put the wave up, it just looked like the solid block. It's like, what the hell? There's no, there's no movement in the waveform at all. It's like, what the hell's going on here? And, that's not good and it's all because of volume i my my record is louder than your record it's another one of those you know ego things again but i'm glad to see that that's kind of going away now right but you know talking about sonic boom and monster i think that they are very much sister records they do hold a lot of similarities paul stanley being the main reason that they're sister records like you said he's the main filter of it he's the one who has to final say on everything uh, also, Greg Collins yep. being involved in both is another similarity, why they might sound the way they sound after everything's said and done. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't totally throw him totally under the bus. Let's see what happens later, because he has done, you know, I'm sure he can do better than what he's done with those guys. And uh, I, I still would like to give him a chance and see if he can maybe, you know, improve on what he's done let's just put it that way who, so, who greg collins yeah re- redeem himself he's had three he's had three strikes right you know because didn't he do uh the re-recordings as well in 27 yeah but the re-recordings i didn't have so much of an issue with it the, the, you know they are what they were they were just done because they wanted to put their music on a pinball machine and wanted to retain the rights to everything so that's really what it was all about <laughs> right so um 
I'm just talking about like major releases in my eyes, right? So, but you know that that's there. They had to be done those records. If they weren't done, we they wouldn't be any forward motion with Kiss. And would there be anything? Would we have another record coming now? Who knows, right? Kiss, not to say that Kiss would never tour again if they didn't make those records. I'm sure they'd still be touring on the back catalog, obviously, right? So, but you know, um, <coughs> I'm just curious. Did Ken, did we have your thought on these two yet, or? Oh yeah, well, I I agree. <laughs> I agree, Sonic Boom and 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 Monster. There, yeah, I kind of agree. They're sister albums. Uh, I think I wrote it. Actually, I did write it down, so I have to agree. <laughs> so uh, even though you know the sound is different, the, like you said, the produ- we said the production, uh, even the songs styles different on these these albums because Sonic Boom is going for the old trying to reach back and get to the classic Kiss style. Of writing, uh, Gene has some you know rewrites and stuff from old stuff uh, he had on there, and then and then Tommy Thayer's redoing A slicks on on Sonic Boom. So he's redoing Bruce uh, Kulick licks on Sonic Boom as well, yeah, and Vinnie yeah, Vincent whereas, licks. Right, and whereas Monster, he's kind of into his own finally um, and doing his own licks, which are which are good. So, but yeah, I, I put it I put it down a sister album. Yeah. yeah, and and did, you, I, did your backbone slip? Because of course that was recycled. Right that, that was recycled on both of those, wasn't it? That That's right. <laughs> Mark, I have a question. I, was gonna... I have a question for you, Mark. Actually, you mm-hmm. know, and just to go off on a, a quick tangent, in the studios that you've worked with, and maybe in your own, you may have an app for that. Do you have an oscilloscope, you know, to watch the waveforms? Because you know, when I go into the studio and have um, an engineer transfer rare audio. One of the first things he's doing is actually looking at the wave, you know, mm-hmm. going through the oscilloscope to actually measure and tweak and adjust uh, mainly the position of the heads on whether it's, uh, you know, multi-track tape or even a cassette tape that he's totally mm-hmm. dialing that in. And that seems to be a lost art. You know, when we're talking about sonic boom being brick walled, was no one looking at wave? You know, and that's something that really bothered me because it was around that time that I came out that I was in the studio getting some stuff transferred, and you know the engineer is giving me a, you know, hour-long lecture about what he's doing to dial it in. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, of all the studios I've ever gone to, that they've been, they've been doing that. Yeah. Then they they do do it. I mean, I remember when I went to the Lacquer Channel when we got one of our EPs done, we had the very fantastic George Graves master our record for us he did a farewell to kings for rush and a few other high uh quality records and it was great talking to him and listening to stories about you know getty and the guys and the stuff like that so it was amazing you can imagine for someone like me but he he was always saying that and he was always when you mention the very thought of brick walling even then to him because i think this is in 2000 and five or six when i went and saw him he was very upset about it the whole you know i don't understand that engineers are doing this because he thinks that it's it's within the engineer's right especially if you have a name like someone like him or someone like you know like a you know robert ludwig or these kind of people who have names power to kind of put their foot down a bit and say you know what i don't want to do that i don't want my name attached to some brick walled sausage waveform i want it to sound good 
and I want it to sound good for you guys. You know what I mean? And I think that engineers got pressured by bands and by labels to say, listen, you know, Joe Blow's record last week on the radio was, you know, two decibels louder than ours, and we don't, we can't have that. You know what I mean? So I think that the, that is something that went way out of control. And yeah, I I make sure that when I do my stuff, I, I on Pro Tools when you when you render a file when you're done doing a mix, you can have it in real time come up as it's being put down. And you can see the waveform as it's being done. And if I ever see anything where it starts going square on me, boom, that's it. Because I, I don't want that. I mean, I want dynamic. I want when a part goes down that there's a little bit of a bring down. When it comes back up, I want it to hit hard. But, you know, if you square it, there's no... There's no texture. There's no showing in that, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, at all. So I think mm-hmm. that it's very important to keep that in mind and i'm and i can't say with some degree of certainty that i know that they've there's been a turn back into keeping an eye on that a little bit more now than they did in past years now there should be a hippocratic oath do no harm to audio mm-hmm. exactly so where were we <laughs> well i was gonna say i was gonna just put up my one other one that i had for Covered his, all mine, her sister so. The, the one other sister records I had, and I don't know what you guys are going to think about this one, but I'll, let me explain, is I was going to put Creatures and Revenge together as records. Because mm-hmm. what I found was interesting with that is that they were both, again, records that were very important in certain stages. Like Creatures was the comeback record, a big, we're back and we're here, you know, we're making the rock record. Mm-hmm. Whereas Revenge was yeah. a, sort of the same thing, where they were, you know, hyping it up that, you know, after the kind of success of Hot in the Shade in terms of they had a decent single and the tour did pretty well, they were going to come back, guns blazing, leather back on and stuff like that. And both of them came out, both of them lots of people liked, but the tours never reflected that like that we have now years later for them you know what i mean like creatures we talk about creatures now but you look in the history books like in julian's fantastic books about the tours and even like the the kiss alive books and stuff those tours are, are, are telling there were lots of cancellations poor attendance you know the same with the, with the alive three alive three how many shows got canceled on that they actually had to stop the tour if i'm not mistaken because I think Paul Stanley said it's one thing to not make money, but it's another thing to lose money, right? So I think those two are sisters in that way. And, you know, sonically, I think they're related too. They're very hard-hitting. Ezrin made that a really hard-hitting. It's Bruce Kulick's best sonic-sounding record easily, Revenge. I think he did a fantastic job on solos and the tones that he got. And I think it's prob- probably, and believe it or not, you're not hearing things. You can hit your headphones to make sure you're hearing things correctly. Bob Ezrin did a good job on Revenge for production, okay? So I will give him that. And I think that, you know, that, that that's where they're kind of related to. They were sonically, they were big records. They did a lot of good work on them to make them sound good. But for whatever reason, when they first came out, they were sort of met with, nah, by the people. And just years later, people talking about them. Like, Look at Lonnie. He's just, like, in love with the thing. He probably sleeps with a copy of Revenge under his pillow or something, you know? So... <laughs> You know, it's it's but that, the, but that's, hey, it's funny how that, that's his asylum. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. I've got a couple of asylum under my pillow. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's funny how how we look at records years later than we did when they first came out. There's a weird mystery with that. Yeah, both of those are failures. I mean, 
if you, if you think of it, how long did it take for creatures to go gold? How long, you know, oh, yeah. you know, revenge certainly failed in everything that they set out for it. I mean, they were setting out goals just like they had with the elder, and it, it didn't attain any of those goals other than being a fantastic sounding record that attempted to, you know, reconnect them with the 14 year old fan base that had been a popular, you know, kind of demographic for them previously with, you know, the lyrics and the songs and the titty bars and all the shit that, you know, it's just so contrived. And that's what makes me not like it in so many ways. Um, but it's just a gloriously, you know, done piece of recording, um, you know, and art, you know, I accept it for what it is. I don't like it for what it is. You know, I was kind of past it at that point, but it's still very well done. It's an album I can appreciate now more than I could back then. Um, just like Creatures was an attempt at a big bombastic statement, which, you know, they're both statement albums. Um, so I, from, from that perspective, I totally agree. They're, they're both <clears throat> they're both solid albums and solid you know gene songs wise they're both very solid for gene and both both albums had the lead off singles were were gene songs right mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is another uh, comparison i guess you can put in there um so and they both had that they had they both had a ballad from you know paul stanley um on that those two albums so there's there is uh, similarities there and uh, they're both really good too. I mean, Revenge is is pretty high up there for me, um, not as high as uh, Creatures, but it's pretty up, pretty high. I'm sorry, it's down with Crazy Nights for me. But oh no, 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 that's too far down. That's just, no way. So si- <laughs> sister albums. Any last ones to mention before I mention my very last one, which will be very brief. Ken, did we get? No, did, no, we get did we hit all six of yours? I think you mentioned that you had. Yeah, you hit all six because uh, we had we had that one uh, which was the same. So all right, well, um, yeah, I'm, well, I'm done. I'm going to put done. the cherry on the top of the cake here, I think, or not, um, because of course, as being Kiss fans, our opinions can change in five minutes, which is mm-hmm. nice. It keeps these podcasts fresh. We don't have to agree with what we said five minutes ago or in the last episode. <laughs> but here's my ultimate right. sister albums, and it's Destroy a Rock and Roll Over plus Crazy Nights, Hot in the Shade. Two pairs of album albums, pardon me, that are complete overreactions to each other. So you go in with Destroyer, and you have an oh shit, and go 180 degrees to Rock and Roll Over, which is just hard rock. You go from art rock to hard rock, because we don't know what the fuck we just did. Then you go into Crazy Nights, and you have a highly polished, calculated piece of album that doesn't work that is a complete failure and you do a 180 and basically release demos for your next one so you have two complete overreactions that makes them kind of sisters to me you know and that, and that was kind of one that should I, I guess it's a bit of a stretch in some ways to drag it out into four albums but you know kiss is yeah. a band that kind of overreacts in in so many ways they scare themselves sometimes they scare themselves shitless they do something like revenge and then they gotta go <laughs> lurch i mean we've said it on the show already you know they kind of stagger forward and you know one step forward two steps back so very kiss Mm -hmm. yeah i like that i think it's interesting Uh, i didn't think about it in that that way that the overreaction which is 
So true. Have, um, have a couple of beers and you never know where you're going to think, you know. <laughs> but so, they did the overreaction. Well, they did the reaction, which the good reaction, you know, going from elder to, you know, creatures. So uh, that's one way. Yeah, and, 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 and some of those sister albums, you know, they're kind of like the red-haired stepchilds. You know, Elder yeah, to exactly. Creatures is a, you know, another sort of 180 from the, oh shit, what did we just do? Into now we got to do what we really should have done in the first place. Well, what, yeah. what is what is Carnival of Souls? Then? <laughs> a mistake. Just... A mistake. Oh no, what it yeah. is. That that was just their that was their very own elder that they just have to own. They should have aborted that one. Oh, you know, Carnival of Souls in so I many know. ways is like Crazy Nights. Crazy Nights is trying to be Bon Jovi. Carnival of Souls is trying exactly. to be Alice in Chains. It's just trying to copy trends yeah, in, instead of you know subtly, subtly steal. You know, if you steal elements Sorry. without stealing wholesale. I mean, if you if you take, I'm going to start right. speaking like Gene Simmons in a minute. I mean, God help me. But you know, <laughs> you steal the whole hog. You know, then you got a pig in the room. <laughs> or, or is that Paul Stanley? <laughs> All right, let's wrap this uh, one up. You know, for all you folks who have made it to this point in the show, we appreciate you listening to <laughs> us as we've gone off on a few tangents today. But, you know, the essence of the show has been about sister albums. Which albums do you think are really sister albums in any of the ways that we've kind of defined it today? You know, Ken's, you know, sequential albums, you know, they've followed one another and they're kind of partnered together. Or kind of the way Mark and I have looked at it and albums that are just so similar spanning the years or do you have a different way of measuring it that you you can partner up albums across the catalog in some different way we'd love to hear your opinions on not only what we've said um but also different ways of looking at the topic so you know join us on facebook on the faq message board wherever you happen to listen to this show and chime in with your opinion we always like to have a conversation where possible also you know chime in on the little bit of the segments about gene simmons and the recording industry as that's a goodie that just won't go away and never will so we do appreciate you listening to us and we certainly hope we haven't done any damage to your brain so we hope to see you again thanks for now thank you for spending time listening to the kiss faq podcast today all sales are final, there are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.